This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. For more, visit theannexpodcast.com. And now we turn to Benjamin Shestakovsky from the University of California, Berkeley. Benjamin recently published Working Algorithms, Software Automation and the Future of Work in Work and Occupation. And Benjamin, it's my understanding that you will be changing institutions uh, next year? Yes, I will be uh, joining the sociology department at the University of Pennsylvania. Hey, congratulations. Thank you very much. Much deserved. Actually, I met Benjamin at uh, the same workshop that I met Robert Francis uh, at on, on the automation automation workshop up at Northwestern. Uh, anything come of that for you, uh, Benjamin? Just some good conversations, and uh, you know, following a few more people's work. It's been it's been fun. How about you? I enjoy. I, I enjoyed yeah. meeting all yeah. of you. That's for sure. You know, and that was that was a real treat. That's always the treat in this business is just meeting smart people and seeing new things. So. In any case, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for joining us. Do you want to start off maybe by telling us a little bit about your work, in particular, your work in occupations paper, which I thought was terrific? So what I'm doing is is trying to intervene in debates surrounding the rise of artificial intelligence and the future of work. Some people say that AI is going to lead to kind of the progressive elimination of human labor. Um, and other people are arguing that new complementarities between human labor and digital systems are bound to emerge, kind of based on historical precedent. What I argue is that in spite of all the interest in this topic, that we still have very little insight into what are the conditions under which software algorithms actually function autonomously, and when do they actually require um, the assistance mm -hmm. of complementary human workers. Um, so what I do is I draw on 19 months of participant observation research that I conducted inside of a startup company. I call it All Done, um, and it managed an online market for local services, things like you know connecting buyers and sellers of um, services like plumbing and tutoring and house cleaning and wedding photography. And I trace basically three phases of the company's development. Um, and I show how basically the, the company's strategic direction was shifting over time. And basically, these new strategies generated new problems that managers had to solve. I show how to solve each of these organizational problems, managers were relying not on software alone, but actually on evolving configurations of software systems and human workers. So sometimes those workers were performing what I call computational labor or routine information processing tasks. Can you describe those just so we get a sense specifically of what you're talking about? These kinds of tasks have been variously described as, as click work, um, or some have called them artificial, artificial intelligence. The idea is that there are some kinds of information processing tasks. I mean, what do algorithms do, right? They, they take any sort of input, and then they perform some sort of operation on that input to transform it into an output. And sometimes software will perform these kinds of operations, will we'll, we'll run these algorithms, and sometimes humans will run them as well. So, um, you know, in a lot of companies, people are using this type of labor to do things like image recognition. So, you know, mark all of the images in which there is a, a guitar or something like that. Sometimes it will be um, 
audio transcription tasks. Sometimes it will be gathering unstructured data from, say, around the internet and structuring it into certain types of, uh, you know, spreadsheets or databases. There are many different types of these micro tasks that firms are. Sometimes they're uh, able to have computers perform these microtasks, and sometimes they're displacing this kind of computational work onto human workers. I have a question about that that I've been curious about. So you know how, you know, maybe you're going through Google Scholar, you're going through multiple sites gathering some kind of data, you're doing content analysis of whatever, and, and then you'll get one of those messages that makes you click the button, I am not a robot, and asks you, like, to actually identify all of the trees in the picture. Is it because they don't want robots to be doing this or is it because they are gathering the data about how you are gathering the data in order to compare? Sure, I I think the answer is actually both. I think a lot of those systems exist on the one hand because they're trying to keep people from say running algorithms that will automatically download every article you know in jstor for instance mm-hmm. that's something they're trying to prevent and then on the other hand companies like google at least are they're trying to actually they're extracting free labor out of you when you're labeling all of the trees or all of the signs in an image um, what you may be doing is training their self-driving car project because you know they basically pull all these images from Google Street View, you know, those those cars with the cameras that drive around every city. And then it actually takes human labor to kind of label, painstakingly label each of those images of what's going on on the roads. And then they use that data in turn to train self-driving cars to recognize, you know, trees and pedestrians and stop signs and, and all of that stuff. One thing that I really liked about your work was it sort of touched on that question of how are human beings going to stay relevant in an age when, you know, the machines seem to be taking over all of the jobs that that we do. So where are the spaces that you think, you know, human beings can survive in terms of remaining economically relevant? I mean, I think just based on my own case, I think it, it mirrors a lot of what folks have been talking about in terms of how computerization, but also a variety of other factors that sociologists are well aware of, you know, everything from financialization to tax policy and the decline of unions, how all these factors are are contributing to the hollowing out of the occupational spectrum. And so we're seeing you know, increasing demand on the top of the occupational spectrum for kind of professional and managerial and technical work. So this is definitely one area where I think uh, folks foresee, uh, you know, human human relevance continuing is in, you know, producing and complementing um, smarter and smarter machines. Uh, so, so like in stuff that's so complicated that it, but so sort of boutique that it's not worth developing all-purpose algorithms to do the job. Type sure, of or it, you know, it, obviously it takes people to design and uh, maintain that kind of algorithmic machinery as well. I'm personally not convinced that quote-unquote smart software AI is going to be able to take over. Uh, all sorts of complex human cognition and decision-making anytime soon. There are a lot of limitations to at least where AI is at now and where people foresee it to be in the near future. So, so that's what's going on on the top. And then on the bottom, I think part of what my case is showing is, especially in 
firms or markets that are dynamic, that are fast changing. There seems to be a lot of room, and this isn't just in my case, but other people have shown this as well, for these two kinds of work that I'm showing. One, this computational labor where uh, human workers are brought in to perform these routine information processing tasks to either kind of support existing algorithmic processes or to uh, sometimes temporarily just stand in for algorithms until um, until the software engineers are able to build them out and test them and refine them. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, also in my case, there's a lot of um, customer support work going on. Um, you know, people performing what sociologists know as emotional labor, um, you know, kind of working with the users of various software systems to help them, um, you know, navigate uh, changing systems or to understand, um, you know, large amounts of data that they have to work with, um, you know, to support the users of software who often, um, you know, as you know, can be frustrated with software or misunderstand how it works. So when you're talking about kind of the computational labor, where a lot of it seems to be kind of about training the algorithm, my understanding is that Amazon created Mechanical Turk not for the benefit of researchers who don't want to have to deal with uh, psych students who need it for their <laughs> freshman intro credit, but um, so that they could actually have a labor pool for themselves um, to train their algorithms. And then as is kind of the culture at Amazon, once they built it, for internal purposes, they kind of spun it out as a service for anyone to use as an open platform um, where they get their nickel. How much of this is kind of like vertically integrated where the company hires its own workers? And how much of this is kind of commoditized microtransaction labor where you hire an M-Turker for five minutes? Yeah, that's a great question. So we don't have good numbers on this. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to know the precise answer to that question as well. I can tell you that I've seen both, um, at least in terms of existing studies that are out there. My case is a case of vertical integration. It's a case where because it's a firm that uh, it's a new firm, it's undergoing rapid changes. What they actually end up doing is, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, you know, what you might call the creative work or the, the innovative work. Um, these are labels that I think uh, should be questioned and contested. But, you know, the actual work of programming software is being done in a San Francisco office. And in order to allow this small team of engineers to really focus on generating new features for the product, mm -hmm. They actually, it's advantageous to them to maintain an in-house team of computational workers because this team can kind of learn these consistent everyday processes that make the website run. Uh, you know, they can be trusted to perform reliably over a long period of time so that that can kind of become something that exists as infrastructure in the background for the engineers in San Francisco. They don't have to think about or question whether things are going to get done. So one example of this is, you know, this is, a, this is a website that matches buyers and sellers of local services. This is their core function is, is to serve as a broker. And you would think that they would just be focused on developing really smart algorithms that would do this very elegantly. But in fact, for a very long time, they 
offloaded this process to workers in the Philippines who are part of this long-term, you know, uh, long-engaged computational workforce. And they were able to basically, you know, perform this task very reliably and consistently, which was very important. And that they didn't just want to offload to kind of random workers on Amazon Mechanical Turk. Um, but there are, of course, cases uh, in which that might make a lot more sense, like, you know, a firm just wants to, um, you know, get uh, 100,000 images labeled or something like this. And it's not like a core function of the product. Uh, those are the cases where I see people um, outsourcing to kind of these, you know, non-vertically integrated, right. uh, these other outside platforms. So this seems kind of like a cr- classic Coase or Williamson make-buy uh, issue where, you know, if there's very, if you, you can tightly specify the task, you'll kind of use commoditized micro labor. Whereas if there's a little bit more transaction cost, learning curve, trust, all those sorts of issues, um, you'll do this within the firm. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think that's a, a pretty accurate. So are you hopeful about the future of people or uh, uh, did, uh, going through the experience and seeing how that sector worked out? Are we in trouble? <laughs> I, I just think it's funny. Are you hopeful about the future of people? It's like you're basically asking if he's never read the newspaper. Right. <laughs> in terms of surviving against the machines. Yes. Yeah. The humanity is already a gone a goner. So like, can they at least work still or survive? Or are they in trouble in that respect? <laughs> okay. For my part, I'm optimistic that work itself is not going to disappear. I think that, um, you know, markets are very dynamic. Uh, People and firms are very creative. Um, I think I'm much more interested in looking for where are the people in the various socio-technical systems that are being developed. It usually... Uh, we throughout history have found that, um, you know, the emergence of new machinery does not lead to just the elimination of labor, but often the displacement of labor, new creative ways of, of using workers. So on, on that sense, I'm, you could say that I'm optimistic. I, I think I'm pessimistic about the future of work, not necessarily because of the rise of the machines, so to speak, but, you know, I, I think there are a variety of, like I said before, there's a variety of trends that are have all been going uh, in a bad direction for workers for quite a while. And part of it has to do with automation, and a lot of it has to do with uh, other things. I think that um, a lot of the important questions are not questions of technology per se or of organizational design per se, but of, of political economy. And Joe, I mean, when you and I went to uh, – we participated in this automation workshop at Northwestern, I, one, of, one of my major takeaways from this workshop was, you know, we kind of already know what to do. You know, we've known for a very long time that mm-hmm. things are getting more and more difficult for workers. Work is becoming more precarious. There's, it's, you know, uh, compensation and, and the occupational spectrum are becoming more bifurcated. But as in the past, um, you know, public policy is one avenue through which we can shape the outcomes of technological progress. It's one of the ways that we can kind of determine how widely the benefits of labor-saving technologies are shared. And I think there are a lot of potential policy solutions on the table, but, you know, the political will, especially at the national level, obviously, to get anything done seems um, minimal, at least at this moment. That's not to say that things can't 
change. So in that sense, you know, I'm I'm not as optimistic, but I also yeah. think that, you know, I'm hopeful that that in the political arena or in the policy arena that over time we can start to recognize um, the possibilities for um, confronting some of these challenges. So Benjamin, I just I, I just have a quick question. So thinking about the things, uh, the types of tasks, and the, not just the tasks, but like the whole jobs, uh, the jobs and the sectors that seem to be automating the fastest. I'm wondering what that tells us about how society as a whole, but specifically those who are actually coming up with the ideas of what to automate and what not to automate. What that tell, does that tell us something about how we value those specific tasks, how we, how we value those specific jobs, or is it like kind of like yuckier how we value the specific types of people that we imagine actually occupy those jobs? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. I think that, you know, I think about this often in terms of this, this complementary labor that is emerging in and around software systems. You know, obviously, I've talked about these two different kinds of, of work, both this kind of routinized click work, this kind of emotional labor involved in bringing users of software along as it evolves and changes. And, um, you know, at least in my case, it is this story of the future of work actually looks a lot like stories of work that we've seen in the past, right? It's uh, folks who are doing the software development uh, are generally, you know, privileged white guys in San Francisco. And then complementary labor that uh, is, you know, far less remunerative is occurring, um, you know, and being taken up by women and people of color elsewhere. In my case, it's this team of computational workers is located basically across the Philippines. It's a, it's a work from home team that's mostly made up of Filipino women. And then the phone support agents are also a work from home team in the Las Vegas area. And of course, based on the compensation, the benefits available, these two teams are, you know, and the work that they do is certainly valued less, far less than the, you know, so-called creative work that's going on in the San Francisco office, even though obviously a big part of my story is how that work simply, you know, this work of designing uh, software in this case simply would not be, would not be possible, would not be nearly as successful without integrating the efforts of all these people whose work is unfortunately valued far less. I mean, at least from, yeah, from the perspective of, um, of compensation. Sure. So with this question of like, will there always be work? You know, I know that that has been the historical trend. And, you know, when we had machine looms, that eventually there was new work for the people who, you know, either the people who did hand looms, or at least for their descendants, all that sort of thing. But, you know, I also kind of take the, uh, the ZMP, uh-huh. the zero marginal product productivity hypothesis seriously. And you see indications of this, right? So like SSDI enrollments are way up. And if you look at the indications, SSDI is in part a physical process about health, but it's much more a social process about work. Yeah, it's it's like a de facto welfare system. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in the 1990s, we got rid of kind of like long-term welfare, Uh and we kind of had this idea of any able-bodied person should work. And then over the following 20 years, we kind of undid that by effectively redefining what able-bodied means. And in practice, 
Right. You know, disability means you're in a moderate amount of pain or a high amount of pain, and you can't get an office job, right? You're not skilled enough for an office job uh, where you could sit. Or they don't exist, right, where you live, right? But yeah. one way or another, there's a mismatch between your skills and what the economy is offering. You know, you're, you're basically, you're not necessarily in more pain than people were a generation ago when people did much more physically demanding work. But there's a there's a mismatch. And, um, there, and then in addition to that, if you look at like, what are the growth areas? You know, the growth areas in employment mostly have to do with social interaction. You know, like you were saying with the customer service line. And not everyone is well suited at that, right? Some people, it could be that, you know, some people just don't have the patience for it. I know that, you know, if you, uh, if my entire job consisted of answering students when they complain about their grades, you would say that I was unsuited for my job, you know, but that, that is increasingly what jobs are now, right? Increasingly jobs are customer service lines and that sort of thing. Sure. Or other kind of in-person service work that you know, can't be, say, implemented with a routine procedure like um, janitorial work or food service, things like that. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if uh, agricultural and uh, manufacturing work is so capital intensive that for all practical purposes, there's no labor involved. And, you know, all that's left is kind of the service sector, but that requires a certain set of skills and a certain set of personality that, you know, a lot of people don't have, especially low-skilled men. I kind of take seriously that we could have you know, a big ZMP problem, especially as we scale up the demands of what counts as an adequate job, right? There's a difference between who doesn't have enough skill to employ at $5 an hour and who doesn't have enough skill to employ at $15 an hour. Sure. Uh, is, there, is there a question or? Well, yeah, I know I feel like I'm the asshole at ASA. Uh, so <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, if you don't have, a, I was just trying to, provoke, I was just trying to provoke you with uh, saying, like, maybe there is a, a way in which we could have long-run technological. Yeah, it's definitely possible that we are trending more in that direction. Um, I guess, I guess, my takeaway though is that you and I, we cannot really predict the future, the precise direction of the future of work. Nobody can. We obviously. Uh, wish that we could, but nobody has really been able to do this in the past. There's no reason to think that we're going to be able to accurately predict the precise shape of the future of work in the future. I think my takeaway would simply be calling back to what I said before, that regardless of whether we are going to see a continuation of the same trends that we've been seeing in employment, you know, a further intensification of what you're describing, for instance, with kind of the, the bifurcation of the occupational spectrum and, and the demand for new jobs really growing most uh, on the bottom, or whether we actually end up seeing kind of much more of a radical break where, you know, machines do really get smart enough that they start to encroach on employment to an extent that we've never seen before. I think either way, mm -hmm. I think moving forward with the kinds of policy solutions that have helped workers in the past to navigate economic turbulence, um, you know, whether it's increasing, you know, the minimum wage or the EITC, all sorts of experiments that people are talking about. Well, those would have opposite effects. You know, increasing the minimum wage should increase technological unemployment not necessarily it depends on if the job the only jobs that are left are the ones that can't be automated and they do need people like if uh, labor is price sensitive yeah 
if we reach a point where computers do everything that we could get them to do in lieu of people, then I, I, I would bet that hiring people would be less price sensitive, I guess, unless there's a big underclass that would take work at any rate, which I guess is also possible. Yeah, I mean, and there are also things like, you know, that people have been talking about for a long time, like decoupling health and unemployment insurance from kind of W-2 jobs. And uh, Joe, these are some like some of the many things that we talked about, right? And at this workshop, you know, yeah. experiments to promote profit sharing or work sharing. I mean, a lot of these things would involve, um, you know, reducing the the power of employers and uh, increasing the leverage of, of employees. And in general, you know, I think whether we're headed towards a robot apocalypse or just kind of a, a continuation of the trends that we see today, these are the kinds of things that I think should be on the table, at least to experiment with. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. For more information, visit theannexpodcast.com. Music is by Lena Orsa. Our production team included Anika Chowdhury and Lisette Moreno. On behalf of the Annex team, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.